0: Hello friends, Stephen here. We've been doing Tenth Theology now for over a year and it has been a wonderful ride. We plan to keep going with this, so don't you worry. But I did think it would be good to take the time to mention something I've never really talked about on the podcast before and that is our Patreon account. If you go to www.patreon.com forward slash theology, you will see three different levels that you can give at. Every level gets the same goodies, which is extra material, courses, teaching, and other interviews. We try and put something up every week so that you get the 10th theology podcast as well as the Patreon bonus episodes. 10th theology is a labor of love it costs some money to make. Not only our time, but also to host the podcast on the various websites and platforms. By giving to Tenth Theology, you allow us to keep making this thing. We are so thankful for the patrons that we already have. And if you are someone who has benefited from Tenth Theology or something that we've made in the past, do consider becoming a patron for as little as five dollars or five pounds a month we're poised to be releasing our study of the Book of Acts on the Patreon account. Here on the podcast, we're going to release the first four episodes looking at the beginning of the Book of Acts, but then over on the Patreon account, you will get a line-by-line political theology reading all the way through to the end of the book. If you've been thinking about supporting Tent Theology, this is the best time to jump on board. Thank you for your support. Now on with the show.
1: Welcome fellow traveler, you are now listening to the Tent Theology Podcast. Each week we have a tent talk where we pursue the renewing of the Christian social and political imagination.
0: Well, why don't we begin with actually, with with how I brought you both here onto this podcast. So welcome to the tent. We have begun our conversation. How it began, the simple version is that I read an article on in the Atlantic couple months ago on down's syndrome children and also on the how worldwide down's babies are becoming extinct i mean there's just no people are not really having down's babies anymore largely due to testing and then abortion and and it was a really good article it was very humane it had lots of stories on all sides and my first thought was i really would love to talk to my friend virginia about this because virginia uh, also in the last few years has had a down syndrome baby and i and i really admire her her uh, her wisdom on things and i like to hear her voice on stuff so i i wrote an email i was thinking of writing an email to virginia about this when at the same time she wrote an email to me because virginia is a friend of the tent podcast and she had been asking me about abortion and violence because we've been doing some stuff on violence and she said i think abortion and violence are two really big issues and you haven't talked about that you only talked about war and uh so there's this kind of email crossing where I was going to write to her and she was going to write to me and so then I started talking with Virginia about this subject and I was hesitant not because I don't think abortion isn't important but because I just don't know where to start with these things and I'm scared of it and Virginia and I batted a few ideas back and forth about how we might conduct a conversation. And then Virginia had the brainwave. She said, I'm going to, I want to talk to my friend Andrea. I think we need to get Andrea in on this. Therefore, I am very happy to welcome Virginia Lindsay and Andrea Lipke to the program. And we are going to talk about abortion and adoption and Down syndrome and our experience of all these different things. So the first thing I want to do is perhaps the way we always do with Tent Theology is uh, uh, find out a little bit about your stories. So uh, first of all, let's get some voices in. Andrea, can you say hello? So we hear your voice.
2: Hello, my name is Andrea Lipke, and I'm really pleased to be here.
0: And where are you calling in from, Andrea?
2: I'm calling in from the eastern end of Long Island in this beautiful state of New York. And you are an editor and a writer and an artist. I or? I'm an editor and a writer. Yeah.
0: Okay, and Virginia, can we hear your voice?
2: Hello,
1: <laughs> nice to see you guys.
0: And where are you calling in from, Virginia?
1: I'm also coming calling in from uh, Eastern Long Island, different town okay. than Andrea, um, in Stony Brook. So.
0: And and you are an, an artist, a portrait painter. Um... Yeah,
1: I've been a makeup artist in fashion for. A few decades, and um, yeah, sort of pivoting to to do more art now.
0: Well, let's start with you, Virginia, because you're the first person that I knew in this in this conversation. Can you tell us a bit about where you came from? What was the when when you what sort of culture were you born into, and and what did people think about abortion and adoption and these kind of issues?
1: Yeah, sure. Well, I'm originally from Alabama, so there's a lot of stuff you can infer right there. Um, I grew up in... I have a sort of a weird background. I initially grew up in the church that started the PCA denomination, so super Calvinist, super conservative. And
0: PCA stands for, for our non-American listeners. The
1: Presbyterian Church of America. Okay. Um, it's sort of the more conservative wing of okay. the Presbyterian denomination. Hmm. I also grew up charismatic Pentecostal, so I've haven't really met very many uh, charismatic Presbyterians. (laughs) (laughs) So I feel like, um, uh, yeah, so kind of weird background. I would say uh, as far as abortion goes, you know, kind of the classic uh, pro-life politically, um, pro-life in in the sense that we all know stereotypically, which is... I do think my parents were, you know, some a lot of times when we talk about pro-life politics, you know, I think it is appropriate to say more pro-birth. Okay. Uh, I think we all know that a lot of the politicians and the ideology that comes with that mm-hmm. is often not really that concerned with life after birth, <laughs> <Okay>. politically. <laughs> right. um, so... Was abortion uh, something
0: people talked about? I mean, was it a, was abortion? It about,
1: was oh, definitely something people talked about, like I would a say. An issue, yeah, yeah. I think, I think more than I don't, I feel like my parents, particularly my dad, I was hearing a lot more about justice and taking care of people and loving people. Um, but as far as like I went to a Christian school, that PCA school, definitely more talk about abortion. And all those hot topics, than like the kingdom of God or taking care of the poor or, you know, these things that are actually mentioned in scripture a lot more than abortion. (laughs) But we had, I remember when I was in high school, you know, there's that famous video, which actually... It was Francis Schaeffer's son, I think. And my grandfather was good friends with Francis Schaeffer and he was in apologetics. And I think he went, I think he was arrested a few times for protesting in front of abortion clinics. And so, yeah, I mean, abortion was definitely like a no-no. And
0: did you have any contact with anyone from the other side? I'm using heavy air quotes here, side.
1: Yeah, Yeah. well, what's interesting And this isn't really my story to tell, but in a personal way, it's quite likely that I wouldn't even exist if it wasn't for abortion. So that's a little bit existential. That's not something, um, you know, I think is was talked about much in my home, but enough that it's definitely something to consider. I didn't really I certainly knew people who'd had abortions, you know, a number of people, Uh, It's so common. No, I I wouldn't say that like any of the pro-choice movement was ever considered. I think it was always vilified, always these people are murderers.
0: Um, Yeah. Okay. And we are going to get to where, where you are now. But before that, I want to find out, Andrea, how, can you tell us a bit about where you were born into? What kind of of imagination did you have about this?
2: Yeah. Well, I um, was born in London, actually. And My mother was from Sweden and my father was a New Yorker and my mother had been a Fulbright uh, scholar um, for a year at Cornell University in Ithaca and met my father and they fell in love. And so I, and we grew up moving every two or three years kind of between England and all around the United States. And my mother was very, very Swedish In certain ways, and that she was very stoic, very kind of, I think, liberally minded until she became a born again Christian when she was 36. Okay. So my mom kind of set the moral tone for the family in a sense. My father was largely absent just because he was a business executive who was traveling the world and winning friends and influencing people and doing all that he did to support us and to kind of excise his own demons from his past he was a drinker and a philanderer but so my mother kind of set the moral tone and when I I guess she had me when she was 29 so I would have been six or seven when she became a believer okay she was very respectful of my father's non-belief so we didn't really necessarily go to church a lot she spoke to us about christ Mm -hmm. but we didn't have i didn't have the full-on experience of kind of evangelical fundamentalism that virginia did right right. also because my mother was temperamentally liberal i don't really remember hearing that much about abortion growing up
0: so you weren't a culture warrior you weren't brought up to be a
2: I, not in that way. My right. mother did, however, get a lot more conservative as time went on. Okay. okay. Um, so I, I wouldn't say that I thought a whole lot about abortion growing up. I mean, there's more to the story that we can get to later well, on. Shall we, shall we continue? Uh, so what, what, tell us about well, what happened. I what When I was 19, I got pregnant the last term of my freshman year in college and i it, it is no small wonder that i got pregnant because i was quite promiscuous and i was on the horns of a dilemma in a sense not in that i considered keeping the child there was never a moment where i truly considered having the baby it was just completely out of the question like there was no way that i coming from the milieu that I did where mm. you go to college or and or grad school and you become a professional and you have kids later in life mm. um I had never longed to be a mother I would say that my maternal instinct came much later okay however I did consider myself a christian even though I was a christian who slept around and <laughs> experimented with drugs and drinking and kind of lived a a very prodigal life in a sense the big the big question was how do I go about doing it I found out during finals yeah and I couldn't do anything about it then and so and I didn't have money so I called my uncle who I felt very allied allied with and a friend to borrow money it was two hundred dollars but I couldn't do it until I got back home to New Jersey and I couldn't do it immediately because my family was taking us all on a vacation after my brother graduated (laughs) from college so there was this very pregnant time no pun intended where I knew what was happening and I felt really tormented by it and
0: were you completely alone were you the only one who knew you were pregnant did anyone else know
2: Apart from my uncle uncle. and my friend, no. Okay. Nobody knew. Okay. So it was this carrying this terrible secret as well. Yeah. When we got back from the holiday one night, a few nights before I was meant to have the abortion, my uncle called and said, you need to tell your parents Mm -hmm. or you will, this secret will rot you out. Okay. And so I I had to tell my parents and it was terrible. Mm as it would be for anybody, but especially for a family that was really split down the middle with my father. My father immediately said, of course you're getting an abortion. Mm -hmm. And my mother couldn't stop crying. Right. And pled with me not to. And my brother, the next day who was also identified very strongly as an evangelical Christian went AWOL. He had just, uh, Become an officer in the navy, and he went off base to come to try to convince me. So on one hand, I had my father pulling, saying, "You're doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. You're an idiot for getting pregnant," which was true. And on the other hand, I had my brother and my mother saying, "Please don't do it. We'll help you raise it. Mm -hmm. You can adopt. Make an adoption plan for the child." Mm. And I ultimately, I was in torment, and I, I went through the abortion
0: because raising a child just even with their help was just in not a thing that was going to happen
2: i i couldn't um, i could not fathom it
0: yeah yeah
2: there was nothing in me that felt like that would have been possible yeah and i think you know this goes into this whole idea of not i there was a part of me that was really amazed that i could get pregnant right because i think there was this sense that i had of I was fully educated sex-wise. My parents had told me the birds and the bees, and I had read books, and I had had sex education in public school. And and still, I was amazed and confused and befuddled at the fact that I actually conceived. So that was my experience. And the fallout from then was basically... I walked away from my faith because my mother, I would say that the biggest part of walking away from my faith was the fact that my mother froze me out. Right. Not intentionally. She just had such a difficult time and I think was truly fearful for my soul. Okay. And what I read was that she didn't love me anymore and that I was unacceptable. And how could I embrace a faith where i was rejected by my very mother yeah so i ran away i not literally but i mean i i ran away from faith
0: mm-hmm.
2: very mm-hmm. very far um but came back to it many years later
0: so you so a 19 year old had an abortion mother froze you out of her life because she couldn't handle what you'd done feared for your soul where was your brother and all this or and your father what were they doing
2: my brother also definitely feared for my soul but i mean he was off in his own world he was on a carrier in the gulf you know right. he was he was an officer in the navy for four years then went to business school and got married and you know okay. he we're very different temperamentally mm-hmm we share a deep love for each other, but we're very different. Mm -hmm. You know, I would say that I've always been temperamentally progressive. I I actually think that these things tend to be temperamental, that whether you're a conservative or a progressive boils down oftentimes to temperament. And my temperament was always progressive and loving the arts and Loving kooky people and story and narr- you know, narrative, as a writer, that's my thing. So, yeah. but tell, I was, tell
0: us about your return to or your experience with with Christ. Then,
2: well, I I would say that I've always been Christ haunted. Okay, even as I ran away from the faith, I was never able to call myself an atheist. I would say I was agnostic, but the, the truth of the matter was that I. Never shook Jesus. Mm-hmm. How how could I shake Jesus? He was he was not the problem at all. Right. Right. Um, but I I really started believing. So I I was God haunted. Mm. Had always had felt acutely that that hole that kind of existential maw. Some people feel it more than others. I've always felt it even as a child, and I thought I really could fill that in with success Mm -hmm. and with love. And success looked like ambition, moving to New York after graduating from university and Mm -hmm. starting to climb the ladder in, in the New York arts and, and literary scene and Mm -hmm. doing really, really well for myself. And meeting a wonderful man who was a filmmaker who was american but grew up in switzerland and we had it got married and had a great loft and i was a columnist for the new york times and mm-hmm. and at age 31 basically fell apart Be, in a sense because of all of that i had been given all that i had thought would fill okay. me and it it was the literal you know ashes in my mouth it it wasn't enough. Yeah. Once I had attained having a biweekly column in the New York Times, I realized that that meant nothing and that it would only mean something if I could be a contributor to the New Yorker. Yeah. Once I had Yeah. a meet a lunch meeting with the New Yorker, I felt like this this what is going on, and I fell into a very deep anxious depression. And um basically had a nervous breakdown and had to put aside my gig for the times and really and go on antidepressant medication and reconsider my life in a sense. And even though I didn't think it was, I knew it was an existential crisis and a psychological crisis, I didn't realize it was a spiritual crisis. Okay. Um, until about a year later and, I was much more stable. I also had a much better relationship with my parents, especially Mm -hmm. my mother, because I had never been able to tell her how hurt I was and bereaved at her reaction and the distance between us and how angry. And when I was in free fall, psychologically, I was able to tell her everything. And so we had a closer relationship mind you she was swedish so there's only a certain way that you can go with swedish there's
0: only so listen i live in england right now andrea you you could
2: i'm sure we could have a
0: competition about emotional barriers
2: trouble that (laughs) trouble that there's not only the fear of embarrassment but and of course this goes into how wounded she was yeah and from her past etc did you
0: so because you you sort of it's almost it almost sounds like you're saying you had nothing left to lose and so you just Reached out, what did
2: I to have talking? to lose? I yeah. I'd reached the point of perhaps either thinking that I needed to ch- check my myself into a psych ward or kill myself. Right. What what was I afraid of? Yeah, yeah. And there was a lot of fear. I okay. think the fear that had me moving into free fall was somehow this fear that I was unable to love, and I think that had to do in part with the abortion. Right. So basically what happened, The my husband at the time was back in Switzerland, in Geneva, seeing his mother. I was with my parents uh, for Thanksgiving, and the Saturday after Thanksgiving, I was going through, I was up for a big job as the editorial director of a big magazine, and I didn't know if I could do it. And there was kind of a controversy going on, because I was being hired above my old boss, etc., And I was going into uh, anxiety spiral and saying, you know, bemoaning to my mother that I, I didn't know why I couldn't get my act together. And she said, I know why you need Jesus. Hmm. And I said, I know you think I need Jesus, but Jesus is for you. Jesus is not for me. And then she looked at me and she said, what are you afraid of? And it was the best question she, she could have asked because I had been feeling this tug, Mm -hmm. but I had been denying it because I was afraid of what my husband would think. He came from a very bohemian family who basically loathed any organized religion and thought it was all hogwash. Yeah. And how could I possibly admit to him that I had been God haunted? Right. When that was the very thing that he thought that he derided in my family, especially right. my mother and brother.
0: Right.
2: So I looked at my mom and said, I'm afraid of what Pierre is going to think. And she said, Well, I understand that, but this is between you and God. Hmm. And so I literally did a sinner's prayer. Mm-hmm. I basically said, God, <laughs> I don't know that I believe in you, but I, and I have tried A1 to do it myself I have really tried hard Mm -hmm. and I can't if you're there let me know and that that was it and literally had this sense that I had thrown this ball out into the air and that rather than falling back down or just hurtling into perpetuity it was caught this Mm -hmm. very real sense that it had been received and that it was real
0: Mm -hmm. Hmm. (laughs) yeah hey we do mystical experiences here as well well
2: so i i'm big into i've had i would say that my most profound god experiences have been absolutely mystical in um in nature yeah and i can't explain it but things changed a lot yeah and i went home the next day with an avid desire to read the Bible and know God. But there was-
0: (laughs) What about Pierre?
2: Well, I didn't tell him for about a month. Okay. um, Because I didn't know how to tell him. Yeah. And when I did, I probably did it at the wrong time because we were back in Geneva for Christmas and we had just gone to an opera and we were going to bed and he was feeling amorous and I was dying inside and all of a sudden it was two in the morning. And I said, Pierre, I think I became a Christian last month. Right. And the bottom dropped out yeah. and it was the worst thing that I could possibly have ever done to, to, to him. In, in his eyes. Right. He saw in it as a personal eyes, assault he saw it as a repudiation of everything that he and his family stood for right he saw it as a psychological trick that my mother somehow played on me right it it was i could have said that i was a a crack whore and it would mm. have elicited much more sympathy and understanding than me saying that i right had become a christ follower yeah um and the interestingly the one of the first reactions he said was are you going to become a pro-lifer? Right. And I was like, I don't think so. That's not what it's about for me. Yeah. And we, we spent six years trying to work it out. Okay. Um, very earnestly on both of our parts, trying to work it out. Could he stay with me knowing that there's this huge divide between us that when I see a sunrise and he mm-hmm. sees a sunrise that i might be thinking about something that he's not thinking about right um which yeah. i kind of didn't understand having grown up in a family where my mother believed my dad didn't believe right. right i didn't i saw that it was a big deal but i didn't i was like why would i have to think what you think of a sunrise anyway mm-hmm. but um the biggest sticking point became could we have children together because he feared that I would brainwash them. Right. And I maintained that I wouldn't brainwash them, but that just as he would be able to live out his values in front of this child and talk about what he believed that I would have to be able to talk about what I believed. And he couldn't accept that. Right. And we separated for seven months to see whether we should move towards divorce or not. And, and, I felt very strongly that we needed to give it one last chance. So I moved back in after seven months and we were excited to be back together and to try to make it work. And we were going to try to start a family. At this point, I was 37 Mm
0: -hmm.
2: and one day we were walking to work and he had heard from a friend of his who had been, who had been pregnant at age 40 that she got the amnio results and that there was something wrong with the baby. Mm-hmm. And she had made the excruciating decision to have an abortion. And he just needs to make sure that I would do the same thing. Right. I, no, actually I was 38. So I was twice as old as I was when I was, I had gotten the abortion and I, we were walking up sixth Avenue in, in Manhattan and I was first so hurt that he would, ask me to promise something like that, knowing how how ambivalently I felt about abortion and how hurt I had been. And and also when I said, well, like what? What kind of like anything like a club foot? It was like anything. Hmm. He's like, especially Downs. And I said, I can't do that. And that was ultimately the beginning of the end of our marriage and so we divorced at when I was 38 and thinking that maybe I wasn't ever going to be able to have children yeah given the fact of my age and that I was at ground zero at yeah. that age so it was the most painful 6 years of my life that kind of interim but now you you are It's married. not the end of the story But you are married and you
0: have children. Can you tell us, Andrew, about where that, where, where are we up to now? How?
2: Tell tell us up
0: to where we are now.
2: Well, I four years after divorcing, I met my husband, Ira, who was also divorced. He's eight years younger than I am, so I was forty-two when we got married, and he was thirty-four. And we knew that we wanted a family. Um, actually, I met my husband the same night that I met Virginia. Okay. And her husband, Jeremy, and your cousin, Christopher, in fact, all on the same night, it changed everything. And uh, Ira was eight years younger than me. So I was 41 or 42 at the time. And he was 34, 35. And we became really good friends for a year and then fell in love and basically dated for five months and then eloped to Brazil. We knew we wanted a family together. Virginia was there. She witnessed it, six people on a beach. It was amazing. And uh, we knew that we wanted a family, but also knew that I was pushing it uh, biologically. So we didn't want to get, try to get pregnant immediately because we wanted to have time together, especially since we had a very short um, engagement period of one week. So, We, when I was forty-five, we tried to get pregnant, and it wasn't happening. And I, we didn't, I didn't believe that I needed to get pregnant, you know, the conventional way or even the artificial way. Um, So we decided to adopt and went through the process of adopting through an agency outside of Philadelphia, and were chosen by a young couple. She was nineteen, and we have this incredible daughter named Rye who was a life changer. And we also developed a relationship with the couple. Uh, and two and a half years later, they got pregnant again and still felt like they couldn't parent. And so that is our son, who we also we also went through the agency to adopt him. Mm-hmm. So we have Soren who's five and a half and Rye who's eight and i am forever grateful for these children and to the couple who found themselves in the situation of being pregnant and chose a different way than i had and my son's name is soren by the way i
0: I was thinking how in the world can i interrupt this amazing story to go i wrote a book about somebody named (laughs) soren we
2: know that we know that no i we're we're my husband studied philosophy and we both love Kierkegaard, and my mother was Swedish. Of course. And we wanted to honor his, her her Swedishness. Yeah. yeah. And so so in Swedish it's Sören. Yeah. Um, is a, as pan Scandinavian as it gets. So.
0: But you, do you use the O? Do you use the U?
2: You know what? Nobody in this country would understand it i so know it's leave just leave it off
0: you can't lumber that poor guy with an uh.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's implied <laughs> so
0: t- now andrew tell me about um abortion now what is your what is your view about abortion now and um have you ever got involved in some of the the debates i mean you're if you're among christians all the time like how do you talk about it to other to other christians
2: for years and years and years, I, you know, I I was in the art world, am in the art world. I'm a writer in a fairly sophisticated group of people, uh, non-believers. I I'm uh, in the secular world, mostly, and in New York entirely. If you're in that world, it, you, you you are de facto pro-choice,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and. In the late 80s and 90s, there was a really strident, you know, culture war going on, Mm -hmm. of course. And I would find myself drawing back, not being able to claim either side, being, being, I would never have said that I was pro-life, even though abortion deserves a lot more attention in the immediate than I how do i say this i i hadn't owned my own story fully in order to make a stand Mm -hmm. and now i feel years later that i have through great therapy through a lot of healing through the redemption story of my own kids through volunteering peer counseling at a pregnancy crisis center other women who had gone through abortion and were having some mm-hmm. of the similar psychological and emotional and spiritual issues that I found I had I kind of came out being able to say that I am pro choice with the caveat that I think both sides have it entirely wrong right <laughs> I I would not they both sides make it very abstract okay and they miss everything i would say that i i believe that it is a woman's right to make that decision that decision being very 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 difficult and nuanced and having repercussions whether they experience the repercussions or not i do believe that for one the body keeps the score There's a spiritual wound that needs healing. Um, There's a relational wound that needs healing. And I think you can ask me, do I regret having an abortion? And I would say it's an impossible question to answer. Mm -hmm. I regret having been in the situation of having to make that choice. And I would say I, there was no excuse. I was, I should have known better. I should have acted better. I didn't. And I have deep regrets around that. But do I wish that i had had a different life in terms of having had a child out of wedlock at age 19? And I hmm. I, I can't know what that would have been like. And I,
0: yeah.
2: Yeah. I don't think it would have been a pretty picture but neither was this a terribly pretty picture. I mean, it, the thing that about Hashem, I ha, I'm having a hard time calling God, God, because God is so so much bigger and more mysterious than anything that I can ever name, Yeah. is that he, she, it weaves our story yeah. into something that yeah. can be life-giving to others. And I've found that this experience has been very life-giving to others. Yeah. And I do have a story about that that I can get back to but so in in the interim between getting married and adopting I volunteered to peer counsel women at okay. a crisis pregnancy center in New York and this pregnancy center was based in the gospel I didn't want to have anything to do with with telling people women that they should not have an abortion right i wanted to peer counsel women who have had them Mm -hmm. and so i did this and it was like getting thrown into the middle of the ocean i'm a very type a ambitious person so i and i and I think that maybe I missed my calling to be a therapist because I've had so much therapy in my life. I think at a certain point, you think maybe I should just become a therapist and make money instead of spending I' sunk
0: all this time into it yeah.
2: um so i I had this young woman who was really smart and really hurt. She was in her mid twenties she had been pregnant at age sixteen, and it had been really hard for her and she mm. was not a believer by any means yeah i don't she didn't ha- i think she had a spiritual life but it was distinctly not christian in nature um yet she had gone to a christian organization for help mm. and i counseled her i think for like 6 months every week mm. and developed this really intimate mm-hmm. safe space to share her pain, and just witness it and walk through it with her. And she, I spoke to her yesterday. She said that it changed her life. She now has a child who's four years old. It turns out was born the same month and year that my child would have been born. And there's this very real sense that that, In a similar way that um, Rye was born to a 19 year old who had made a different choice that somehow meeting this woman and counseling her at this point in time was a full circle for me because she was the same age as my child would have been again, I'm a, I'm a storyteller. So I find like, I'm looking for these narratives, but it really mm-hmm. did kind of come up in this sense yeah. that we really changed each other's lives. And, and I helped in her healing yeah. and she helped in my healing and she is an ongoing part of my life. And I'm really thankful to her. And interestingly, she, a month before COVID hit, went to the same organization to volunteer peer counseling because she wanted, as she said, to pay it forward. And then, of course, COVID mm-hmm. hit and she hasn't been able to do it. She's homeschooling her four-year-old single-handedly. There are, I have more stories, but I, I think I should probably cede um, to Virginia at this point, And I'm welcome to answer any questions.
0: So we left you, Virginia, as a young girl in Alabama in I'm guessing the sort of culture that was exactly the sort of culture that Andrea's husband despised, the kinds of people that that the kinds of people that Pierre was most scared Andrea would become. So, what where where are you now? What what where did we get to? Uh, we left you at a teenager in Alabama, did we? Let's bring us up to speed. You made some different choices in your life.
1: Yeah, indeed. And actually, I have to say, Andrea is the godmother to my son who has Down syndrome, and I couldn't think of a better godmother for him.
2: I call him a love bomb. <laughs>
1: <He has> a <laughs> love bomb. Actually, you're a love bomb too, Andrea. Yeah, so I feel like I personally evolved on this issue a lot, and, and I think, you know, we'll, we'll talk about sort of the larger issue later. Uh, but just personally, yeah. So I grew up very kind of politically pro-life, not fully understanding the nuance of the argument. I don't think I was really educated in that way. When I was in college, there was a minute, I, I was like, totally in the whole purity culture thing. Didn't kiss a boy till I was 21. actually. I think I bought into the purity culture, not because I was really, I mean, I thought the purity culture was good or whatever, but mainly because I really couldn't stand like toxic masculinity. Mm. Anytime a guy tried to even like put his arm around me immediately, I was like, no, 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 no. You know, I just didn't like, right. did not like to be dominated by men at all. Super, super Bristly about that really fast, uh but anyway, when I was in college, and the first guy I kissed ended up actually <laughs> having sex with him, kind of um not not really it sort of just kind of happened accidentally. it was kind of weird like i and i didn't I was not prepared at all like i had i didn't have a lot of sex education, obviously, like no prior real experience, and for a minute, I thought, oh i could be pregnant and i remember thinking at the time because i i think too i had learned a little bit about kind of the psychology of you know and i don't even know how much of this was based in real research but there was enough knowledge that you know my thoughts as a mom would affect whatever you know child was in my body and so i immediately was not sure if i was or not but was kind of like oh man like really trying to have nurturing thoughts and and they were sincere i wouldn't say and you know and i told my mom and she was great right. and um i ended up not being pregnant so i didn't have to make that decision but i think if i did have to make that decision you know my life would have taken A very different road when i did when i was ready to have children and i had one miscarriage which is also really common um prior to us getting pregnant me and my husband and um our i remember when i was pregnant with my first child my daughter bea and and looking at the you know, the sonars or whatever. And, and thinking, my God, like, how could people like, this is wrong to, to have an abortion. This is wrong. You know, this is a, this is a, a person.
0: But for you in, in your experience, it was a gut. It was just this gut feeling you weren't like politicizing it or intellectualizing it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then I, and I remember feeling like really torn. Do because I've never, I don't think that I've ever been really, when I grew up, when like was out of of my cultural context, staunchly pro-life, staunchly pro-choice, not, yeah. it's such a nuanced, vague thing. And I think it it does require a lot of seeing and attention and learning and getting outside of yourself and confronting a lot of your own mm-hmm. issues, a lot of your culture's issues. And that wasn't something that I felt like I had the brain space to do at that time. Mm-hmm. And so um when I was kind of more confronted it with it when I was pregnant with my daughter, I was like, okay, well, I think abortion is wrong. I don't know what that means about whether it should be legal right. or not, but was kind of thinking right. maybe it should be, mm-hmm. I don't know. As I started to think about the issue more then and sort of really take a look at it honestly came to the conclusion that I don't think it should be illegal but I am so I am pro-choice politically but I am anti-abortion I am I would say pro-life in the real sense right. that I I I believe in life and I believe in taking care of of life creation of of each other and so I think if you that opens up a whole nother can of worms because that goes beyond the abortion Mm -hmm. issue that's everything and I didn't see the the people who were saying they were pro-life politically doing that at all not at all I mean such the opposite like didn't care about the environment didn't care about the poor then also thinking about this issue if I'm anti-abortion I have to look at this whole issue how women who have abortions, it's not like they're like, yay, I'm excited to have an abortion. Right. How like they've been put in a position? And I think, you know, that's something we can talk about later. Uh, with this question of uh nonviolence and how that right. plays into, yeah. you know, we hear a lot from Christians about nonviolence to babies. Well, what about nonviolence to women? So were you, they're not talking about that as were, much.
0: Were you crystallizing these feelings and thoughts? Uh While you were having your daughter, or after you'd had your daughter, or
1: kind of all, all, all around, and then after, you know, it, and I'm sure I'll still evolve and change on this issue, and I hope I do because it's, um, it's not black and white. You can't be dualistic thinking about this, and I think you know that's where the the pro life, pro choice conversation is really broken, and I'm hoping that talks like this happen more often where. can be addressed more holistically and and we can really see each other better I think that's where to start like how do we see each other
0: so we mentioned we name checked that uh Andrea is the godmother to your son so bring us up to your son yeah
1: yeah so that's a that was a whole other thing and so abortion did end up touching my life in a real way when I Pregnant with my second child, my son, I was 35. And so when you're 35, you're required to have the prenatal testing. I I did not, I declined it with my daughter. I don't know, I cannot remember if if I wasn't allowed to de- decline it with my son, but I think for some reason I just said, you know, okay, we'll just do it mm-hmm. this time. And it ended up he did have Down syndrome. Oh, I know what it was. I wasn't, it it wasn't that I was required. We went in for a scan and they, the size of his neck looked thicker and they thought this, he could have Down syndrome. And then I said, okay, I'll do the test. I was even kind of conflicted about that, which is silly. There's no reason to be. I just was, I didn't feel like it would change my decision, but it's nice to know, you know, so you could prepare. So found out my son was going to have Down syndrome. I think- with that there's a the death of an idea so you go through a grieving process i my husband and i where i felt like we were really connected on so many issues came to a point where we were totally on different pages so for me i i i couldn't consider an abortion it just wasn't something that i whether i'm a christian or not it just wasn't something that i felt like i could do we had tried for this child he um you know we were in a family we what am i gonna do he's not good enough throw him away like no gross i just felt really uncomfortable with that and also thinking about too for me kind of an everyday life even before i got pregnant with him anti-discrimination and inclusion and diversity was really important to me. How could I say that those things, fight for those things or talk about those things being important to me and then discriminate against my own son? That that yeah. to me, I felt that felt sick to me actually. I felt pretty strongly about that. Where my husband did not and also he really well, he was very upset about the diagnosis and he really wanted to consider an abortion. And we had, I mean, he would say, we didn't have a lot of talks about it. We did have a lot of talks about it, but I was put in a, I was put in an awkward situation because I'm carrying a child who's now, you know, over 20 yeah. weeks. So he can hear, he can, all these yeah. things, he can hear our conversations. He can feel my yeah. energy. And I am talking with his father who wants to consider killing him. (laughs) And so then I'm feeling vulnerable. Like I have to protect my son. Am I going to have to choose between my husband and my son? Now this paints my son, my husband in a bad light. I, this is true. I don't think it's his brightest moment, but at the same time, I have to say like, he's a, A really wonderful person. He's a great dad. Don't hear the story and think there's nuance there as well. He had been, he had suffered depression for a very long time and was newly out of medication, doing really well. I think he had a real fear that, and legitimate, that this was going to throw him back into spirals of depression. And then how would that affect? would he make it and also how would it affect our daughter how would it affect our family and could he function you know and that's that's legitimate and he was so grieved and so i we i mean there was just major 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 division in our marriage and we're both mm-hmm. christians i mean so there, there wasn't a a kind of religious you know divide obviously we ended up having him I don't know. And and my husband would say this in the end of the day, I don't think he knows the answer, whether or not he could have actually gone through with an abortion or not. But I think he was really upset that it wasn't something I was going to consider seriously. I mean, I did listen to him and we did talk about, but it was just, it, it was not in my brain space. And I think that was really, really upsetting for him. So, Virginia, where is
0: your husband now with this story?
1: Um, He's in a very different place. It's still a place of growth and complication. And I think this journey for both of us will probably never end, as journeys right. never end with any relationship anybody has. But it's pretty amazing to see how opening this door has changed both of us and i think for my husband in particular who has always kind of had more issues with this he's become so much more open minded and uh-huh. things i think i would say before he you know he's two ivy league degrees very kind of on paper very successful these sorts of things matter or mattered a lot to him. And I think he was sad that he wouldn't share this with his son necessarily, but it's these kind of values at the same time are also killing him. I mean, he was constantly comparing himself to people suffered from depression and anxiety, and he still struggles with that, but it's pretty amazing to see how he's, by saying yes to Phineas and allowing himself to be next to otherness, it's freeing him, I would say, from himself and this worldview that was really kind of crippling him. So I, it's just been a tremendous blessing and he's an incredible father. I mean, he's an incredible father to both of our kids. And I think even when he does get sad about Phineas's diagnosis, he still picks up. He's there for him. He's such a good dad. I don't think there's regrets at all. We have hard days, but we have hard days with our other daughter who doesn't have down syndrome too. And, you know, I would say the only time our son, things seem hard or sad is when we compare him to other children. And I think That's also true for the way my husband, when he would feel sad, when he would compare himself to other people. And obviously, you know, it's foolish to compare for a number of reasons and we all can fall into that temptation. But it's pretty amazing to see in a way that's so crystal clear, the dangers of that and the pitfalls of that and how unnecessary it is and how how things are fine and good and happy when we don't do that it's just that when we do that's that's really the only time the sadness comes in other i would say it doesn't exist otherwise which is really interesting and then there's this other and and we can talk about this later too but kind of the classic thing is there is a culture surrounding down syndrome and there's a culture surrounding kind of the medical community approach this yeah, sort right. of thing. I mean, Down syndrome is the most common genetic disorder. That's what it's called. I I don't even feel calling it comfortable calling it a disorder anymore, to be honest. But you know, if that's what you want to call it, it's fine. It's mm-hmm. the most common one. I would say I feel comfortable saying this: the medical community's approach to this issue, and we can see this because there is okay. the ratio of funding for research for people with Down syndrome is astonishingly low compared to the amount of people that that have it and compared to the other amounts of funding that go towards other genetic disorders.
0: So it's the most common genetic disorder with the least amount of resources poured into it.
1: Yeah, yeah. And uh, most of right. the funding goes to the genetic testing. And the answer has been... Let's just get rid of these people. You know, I saw Andrea actually pointed to me the the film Crip Camp, which is great. I really, really recommend it. But one of the things that struck me is at the very beginning, one of the the men who actually made the film, he has spina bifida, is talking to another person with a disability, and he says, "You know, they're always looking for ways to kill us." And I think that's true. And I, and I I even think it's true within. I know it's true, and it, it within the progressive community i will never forget i was pregnant with phineas and slate mm-hmm. magazine which is you know a real progressive magazine and has a progressive readership had yeah. done a story similar to the atlantic story not yeah. quite as nuanced but addressing yeah. because in iceland you know 99 of people of people with down syndrome are being aborted 99 so it's becoming extinct so there was an article about that in slate and i piped up and you know this i'm not on facebook anymore but at the time i was and just was offering my opinion about the article as someone who was currently experiencing the whole prenatal stuff with this and i and i used the word eugenics and people freaked out freaked out It was the most common and uncommon in the whole thing. They were like, like, I don't know, hundreds. And I have never felt more violence against me in my life. And I was even like, I'm a pregnant woman. We're supposed to be supporting each other. And I felt gut punched over and over and over Mm -hmm. again by these women who are all about civil rights and racial justice, but did not feel like someone with Down syndrome was worth, like this was even a conversation worth having. Seriously, it opened my eyes to, gosh, so many things that, you know, other people who are not valued in society, you know, I'm a white middle-class woman who really hasn't felt a lot of that. And now I can touch that in a real way, you know, in a different way, but it's, it's, it's just crazy.
0: <laughs> Virginia, Andrea, I'm going to draw this part of our conversation to a close. We have brought us up to the modern era, to the current age, and we are all now in one room. And what's going to happen is I'm going to end this particular episode, but we, I'm going to invite you back. Will you please come back for the following episode? to continue talking about these things and i I would love to get you to talking and then sit back and see what happens when we have uh i know that you have so many things that you you care about and know about and have experienced and so we'd love to continue this conversation can i please ask you to come back again for the next session
2: on the condition that you provide a nice cuppa and some chocolate digestives
0: for your london your london roots we'll go back to the English roots absolutely
2: (laughs) wonderful thank you all right
0: friends Cheerio, friends. See you soon.
2: Cheerio. Cheerio. To further support the show, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media and learn more about Tenth Theology at www.10theology.com. Thank you for joining us, and God bless everyone.